Before we start today, I want to introduce a new sponsor to the podcast, Certified Site Safety. This is a company that I am proud to recommend for patients of mine and anyone else seeking help in evaluating mold and other toxins that might be present in their home. If you've listened to a prior podcast of mine, Is Your Home Killing You?, you know that I interviewed Joe Reese, who is a true mold detective. Joe evaluates homes and has saved many of my patients from toxins in their home by evaluating them and teaching them how to remedy it. If you see or smell any effects of water damage in your home, Joe and his team at the Certified Site Safety are the team that you want. Their website is www.certifiedsitesafety.com, and Joe welcomes calls to even his cell phone, 914-437-5454. So many of us don't know where to turn when our home is making us sick. Now you know. Please contact Certified Site Safety, and Joe will help organize his team to remedy your problem. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today, my guest is a longtime friend, a colleague. He's got a super busy family practice on Long Island. It's Dr. Neil Soskel. Dr. Neil, as his patients refer to him, has been in practice for over 30 years. And in that time, he has seen a lot. We've had a lot of interesting conversations over dinners about our patients and the cases that we've seen. What's really interesting is that he's taking care of children, their parents, and even their grandparents. It's almost like the old days of Marcus Welby. Today, I want to discuss with Dr. Neal what he sees that's going on in primary care today and how all of us as patients can get the most out of our doctor visits. Dr. Neal is an associate clinical professor at the Zucker Northwell School of Medicine on Long Island. He's also been named multiple times to the Castle and Connolly New York Magazine Top Primary Care Doctors. I'm still waiting for that, even though I'm the smartest doctor in the room, but one day it will happen. Anyway, I'd like to welcome Dr. Neil Soskel to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dean. Okay, loosen up, because uh, we all know how interesting and amusing you can be. <laughs> um, so... Dr. Neal, what I want to ask you, uh, I like to ask all my guests this, and it's interesting. I know a little bit about your background because we'll, we go back a long ways. If you remember, I'll just tell the, the listeners quickly. Uh, you and I were pretty young doctors in practice, and I was giving a lecture at South Nassau Hospital. And, uh, of course, I think you asked me some really tough questions. I was giving a talk on anaphylaxis, uh, but we became friends shortly after that. And, uh, you know, after that, it was interesting because a lot of doctors that were there it kind of like over the years disappeared. They never really, the next group of doctors of family doctors never resurfaced. So how did you get interested in family practice? Because I, I know that also you did ER medicine and I think sports medicine for a while. So how did you end up coming back? I know you trained in family medicine, but what ultimately decided to open your own practice and, and you know, go for it? Well, for me, it was really a process of elimination. I, I you know, there was nothing that, there was not one field that held my interest. I get bored easily. I, I, so I started out in the ER uh, for a couple of years and um, they, 
the an ER specialty was not a real thing when I just started. They were right. just talking about board certification. So everybody that worked in the ER were either primary care guys like myself or internal medicine uh, specialists. And when the ER specialty came out, you know, in order to sit for the boards, it would have required um, a, a certain amount of more hours, another thousand hours of work and, um, and honestly, after a couple of years of it, I was getting burnt out. Um, one day I would be working, you know, midnight till 7 a.m. The next week, next day it could be 7 Very p.m., 7 a.m. Yeah. And it was really wreaking havoc on, on me physically and mentally. Um, and one day I was in the ER and I was approached by a guy who had the biggest family practice in this was in the hospital I was at. And he said, what are they paying you? I told him, he said, how about I pay you the same amount? You come work in my office and you don't have to do weekends or, or, you know, um, or maybe one weekend a month, you won't work past seven at night and I'll pay the same amount. And sure enough, I said, okay, I'll try it. And did that for a while. And um, at the same time, I, I had a huge interest in sports medicine, which was really non-orthopedic uh, surgical cases. And my, my ultimate goal at that point was to uh, develop a sports medicine program. However, once again, there was no board certification in sports medicine at that time. So um, I started working as a team physician for one of the local colleges and a bunch of the high schools and and unfortunately, I had to make a decision. I couldn't do both. Right. Um, and I, I couldn't afford to, you know, put down the following that I had built up already um, in primary care. And I kind of gave up on the sports medicine and just ended up as a full-time primary care guy and eventually moved out on my own. And that was about 30 years ago. And the rest is history. You know, the <laughs> funny thing is, because patients a lot of times ask me, and this is, I think, what we have in common. Um, a lot of times patients ask me like why, you know, I originally also went into like allergy and immunology. And even though I'm doing a lot of holistic and functional medicine now, and I said to them, you know, in my heart of hearts, I probably wanted to be like a family doctor, like Dr. Marcus Welby, the kind of, you know, the kind of that, you know, that patients all felt comfortable with. Also like you, I didn't want to just, I, I trained in internal medicine. I didn't want to just treat like older patients, you know, people in their seventies or eighties with cardiac conditions. I didn't want to be a gynecologist and just treat women nothing against women. I like right, women, right. you know, and I love the idea of treating children, their parents, a whole family. I, I particularly, I just loved immunology. So that that's what kind of pushed me. But what's really interesting, and that's what I give you a lot of credit. And as I said, I've known you a lot of years is that, you know, when I trained in internal medicine, most of the residents couldn't run fast enough to a specialty because they were afraid of the diversity in primary care. You have to know so many areas of medicine. I mean, every day I'm showing your practice, you don't, you're not seeing any of the same cases that you may have seen the day before, where, you know, if you're a urologist, you're seeing the same, you know, prostate issues and et cetera. And primary care is a huge challenge. It, you know, you just have to know so many different things. And I also like to make the analogy and, and people, and we're gonna get into this because this is one of those important things of the podcast today is that I see primary care, really good, you know, um, family practitioner like yourself or others, is that you're like the Magic Johnson of, of medicine. And you say to me, why? Because you're the assist guy. 
you got to get these people, you know, it's it's easy sometimes, you know, we see LeBron James, whatever, them doing the dunk. You know, we used to see Carl Malone, remember the Utah Jazz, doing the dunk. But the guy that feeds them the ball to be in perfect position to do that dunk, that's the that's the key person. And, and again, in basketball, they know that. And in medicine, and this is what I want to get to, in medicine, we've moved so much away from that. So few patients that I even see, especially in New York City, you know, I'm in Long Island, New York City, have a primary care doctor. So what do you think that is? I mean, you know, your, your uh, contemporaries, your colleagues who you train with at your practice, why do you think so few of them have, I guess, remained in private practice or, you know, is it because it's just so hard to do? Well, a bunch of things. First, yeah. you, you talk about um, how you have to know so much about so many different things. And it reminds right. me of the story I had the privilege of meeting one of the most world-renowned cardiologists at a lecture a while ago. His name was Valentine Fuster. Oh, oh sure. I, I, did yeah. a, I did an internship with him once. Yeah, that's right. Funny. And, you know, uh, we had a friend in common. And before the lecture, I was introduced myself. And we started talking and he asked what I did. And this is one of the top. He, oh, he's one of the top cardiologists in top the world. Guys, literally in the world. Over a thousand papers written. Yes, and, yes. Um, mm-hmm. And he asked me what I did, and I told him I did primary care. And he said, I, in my heart of hearts, I really wanted to do that, but I, there was too much to know about too many different things. So I just stayed with the heart, he told me. And <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. It's um, true, but it's true, though, because as you know, so you know, everybody likes to be a super specialist in things and, and be really confident. It's really hard when you have to put yourself out there. Um, but as you said, too, I think that's what kept you and I both still really into our practices because we see so many different things every every day you know? right and listen you have to know your boundaries you know you, you don't want one you don't want to be one of these primary care guys who become a referologist and all they do right. is patients right. send them out you know right i don't well do that, that happened in managed care i mean i think again you know talking about why was there the exit for the you know for the exits in medicine i think especially during the time of the hmos I mean, a lot of primary care doctors felt like they're becoming glorified secretaries. And it was very right. frustrating. It is very frustrating. And when you look at it, you know, we really are the quarterbacks of healthcare. Right. Um, and I think I think the number is six to seven percent of healthcare dollars are actually spent in the primary care die uh, office. Yet we control 85% of of the downstream revenue. So right. it really is an important job. And and, you know, the predictions have shown, I've read papers that we're going to be down, you know, 100 to 150,000 doctors in the next, you know, 10 years, or if not less, you know, that's a thousand less doctors per state, you know, that's a lot of doctors and, you know. And you, cause you guys can really save the patients. I'll make the analogy in my area and I, and I want the listeners to listen to what you do. Like, for example, you know, and again, I deal a lot with sinus patients and, and nothing against ENTs. There's some really amazing ENTs. But when I'm caring for a lot of patients with sinus conditions, I'm like, I don't think you need that surgery. Let's deal with your underlying inflammation. Let's do this. So not only did I save the patient from having a surgery, which is never a minor thing unless it's on somebody else, right. you know, and, and the healthcare system, thousands and thousands of dollars. And like you, when you see a patient, let's say it comes with back pain, acute back pain, if they were to run on their own to the orthopedist, you know, who knows? Could be a 50 50. <laughs> they're getting a procedure. And when they come to you, like, look, let's do some physical therapy. Let's do this. You know, so, like you said, yeah, you, as the quarterback, you play a big role in making the calls. But again, you have to have that trust. 
And what I've seen, again, from my view outside of primary care, is that fewer and fewer patients have that trust in their primary care doctor. I almost hate using that term. I mean, you're their doctor. And, you know, I know you and I know I know your patients because if I go to a restaurant with you, I can't go to a restaurant without one of them coming over to you and thanking you a, a hundred times. So that's why we try to go to other places. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that has been lost. And I, I think that pride in being, you know, the doctors used to be like the, 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 the third person in the town. You know, there was like the mayor, the top doctor, the top lawyer or whatever. And that's gone. And, and I think also, unfortunately, urgent care centers are a little bit responsible for that. What, yeah, what, what, do, you see, what do you see the role for that in primary care? Do you think more negative or positive? But it serves a good purpose to help keep people out of the emergency rooms, of course. You know, the problem is we have probably equal amount of millennials as baby boomers now. I, I think the last I read, it was kind of a 50-50 thing there. You know, you have the seniors who have pretty much have their primary care. They do, right? They know. They're, they're, not, they're not taking chances. When they have an emergency, they want their doctor. Right. They don't want to see some you unknown, know, right? The, the millennials now, you know, they they rely on the urgent cares or most of them don't have primary care doctors. And, you know, they want they don't want to call an office in here. They can't be seen for a week. You know, they're right. immediate gratification. So, you know, to get the millennials reeled in, you know, we need to work work with them. You know, it's a generational juggernaut, if you would say, because we have to figure out a way to, whether it's telemedicine or- Right, I think tech or, is the answer. You, you bring up a great point. You're right. A, a young person, whether they're working from home, like a lot of them are these days or whatever, too, they don't want to hear, they have to wait three weeks if they have some acne lesions or if they, you know, they don't feel well. But yeah, yeah. tech could be an amazing bridge it's just, you know, everything has to be in place. And, you know, and as you know, in medicine too, we're kind of really slow to adapt, or especially hospitals are slow to adapt to what people, you know, want. And especially, like you said, the young people, like, you know, we are, the kid, our, our children who are in their 20s, you know, late 20s or whatever, early 30s, they, you know, they don't want to be bogged down and sit in a waiting room for two hours and, no, you know, they, they want to, they want immediate, immediate gratification This is my problem. Because otherwise I feel like I should, why should I go to my 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 doctor who I trust, you know, when I, I don't have time to go to two visits, I got to go just to one. But not realizing by going to you first, they may cut down having to go to that second one and maybe be less expensive and less painful. Yeah. You know, inevitably they'll go to an urgent care center and if if they get better, which some of them do quickly, great. If not, they end up calling us. <laughs> That's when we get the emergency phone call of, you know, of the guy we haven't heard from in two years that, you know, he was diagnosed with, you know, X, you know, a week ago yeah. with your care, and now they're still not feeling better. Right. What should they do? You yeah, know? I, I think this yeah. is a really important point. I, I've made this joke and maybe I shouldn't, but I said sometimes, because I've seen it was a lot of patients that sometimes, obviously I know on weekends or late at night, maybe they run to the urgent care, but sometimes even during the week. And I said, it's almost like that television commercial where you see these bank robbers break into the bank and there's a guy dressed in a, in a uniform, right? So you think he's a policeman and it turns out he's called a, a security monitor. And when, the, when everybody's like laying on the ground, face up like, and looking at him, like do something, he goes, I'm just a monitor. I'm just here to tell you, you know, there's a robbery going on and like, well, yeah, right. who, who needs that? And I mean, I know that's a little bit facetious, but I, I guess my... 
I, I think there's a place for them, but I think the negative, as you're pointing out, is that when people use it as their primary general doctor, a lot of things get missed. They don't, they typically don't see the same doctor in those urgent cares. Or, they don't yeah. really know their history. You know, they're seeing them at one shot deal. I mean, that's what emergency rooms are for, one shot deals, because they have to do a lot in a very short amount of time. Whereas you and I, we know our patients over months, over years, and sometimes decades. Now, of course, listen, they don't know the patient's normal weight. They don't know the patient's normal skin color. They don't know. They don't know their disposition. Like, you know, you and I know when a patient walks in and it's like, you just don't look right today. Are you upset about something? You know, whereas in those kind of things, they they can't know. I mean, it's. Right. Right. An urgent care doctor is not going to say, well, I seen your chart. You lost 30 pounds. No, because they haven't seen this guy. Exactly. Exactly. What do you think as far as like screening wise is probably one of the more dangerous things? I mean, um, that is it like colonoscopies? Is it, I don't know, like cervical screening for women? Yeah, listen, I mean, what- you know, as we head toward a world of value-based medicine, you know, and quality measures, you know, certainly, you know, screenings from everything, diabetic retinopathy and colonoscopy and mammogram and PAPS, you know, this, this is, you know, look at our most common c- cancers, you know, uh, lung, breast, colon, you know, people should be going for their LDCTs and all, all these, all these things that are getting missed. And it, it, it's, it points out their major flaw in medicine, which is we are not proactive, we're reactive. And we have to change medicine if we want to fix the system. And yeah, we, we've shifted a lot back to the patient. I mean, there was the day when patients went for their annual physicals like clockwork. You know, today, it, again, it just seems like more and more that everybody's, you're, you're on your own. It's the Wild West, you know, and, uh, you know, but again, I, I, I really have to come back to this again. So many patients that I talk to, it's really sad, really unlike your practice, they're really unhappy with their general doctor. I mean, they... They'll come to you all the time. I can't find one I like. You know, it's and you know it's not a popularity contest, but as you know, you have to, you know you have to make that connection with the patient. Otherwise, nothing else is going to get done. They're not going to follow your instructions. Yeah. They're not, uh, you know, they're not going to be, you know, get the full it's benefit also, of what you have over. You know, listen. The way you know it used to be, you'd go out in on your own, build up a practice. You would have pride in it. You would work hard to build it up. You know. The new generation of doctors, they don't know don't that. Want that anymore. They, you know, they just want that paycheck. They want to work nine to five. There's no, there's no, you know, uh, carrot at the end of the treadmill for them, you know, say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take pride in this and build up a big practice. And one day I'm going to sell it. And, you know, those yeah. days are over. So. I, I know. I think you know, I was about to ask you about that. The difference in, in hospital based owning practices you know i it's funny you bring that up because i say to patients a lot of times they'll they'll question me about you know can i reach you you know what happens if something bad happens and i did a video about this i go outside my my front door and it says mitchell medical group run i said my name is on the practice and it's like for you for your whole almost your whole career it it was your name i mean that's what people identify they didn't think of whatever you know your practice was called they thought you know i know dr neil and I think you're right. I think the, the next generation of doctors, whatever, from the system changing, whatever, it's like they graduate, they feel like we're just going to work for a hospital system, which is fine. I mean, you, there's obviously a lot of advantages. And 
And medicine, you know, running a private practice has become so difficult that it, it's almost like the only option, especially for people coming. We couldn't, I, when I look back, what you and I did back in 1991, I, I don't, we couldn't do today. It'd be almost impossible, no you know, to open up coal, open up coal, hang out in your shingle. I used, to, <laughs> I used to like, you know, when I used to look at my appointment book during the day, I was like, there's more empty space than there was, you know, space, you know, filled up with patients, you know, and it, it took time. and. You know, and I think today's young doctors are like, look, I went through all this schooling. Unfortunately, they have tons of loans, a lot of them. Like, yeah. I got to make money to, you know, and I need security. So, but I, I think we're, I think we're bringing up what a lot of people feel. They don't think about it because, you know, essentially, you don't really, you know, I always make the analogy to you don't think about your doctor until you're not feeling well. Then you want to know, where's the guy that I trust and who's going to take care of me and get me better, Right. right. So anyway, off the top of your head, any cases that really ever that stick out in your mind? I mean, because I have one or two I, I can share after, but anything where you were like, wow, that was that was a great, that was a great diagnosis I made, or you know, I don't expect you have to, you don't have to share your <laughs> we all have our ones we missed, but you, you know, know you don't way. really remember the great diagnosis. No, okay. Wait, wait. No, you, you, or you know, the most listen, scary, you, one of the most scary case, the one like the one that stays with you, you most of you. I'll tell you mine in a second, but the one that stays with you, you just I'll, never I'll forget. You, yeah, listen, I, I've picked up craziest diagnoses in the world, you know, everything from you know, parasites to cardiac amyloidosis to, you know, oh, wow. you name it over the years, you know, hypereosinophilic syndromes, which you can relate to, you know, there's, you know, and obviously we've saved a lot of people, you know, and, but it's, it's the ones that you kind of miss that I remember. Oh, of course. I mean, look, and, like, as we're, if we're all honest, you know, the one things that keep us up at night are the cases that we're like, oh my God, how did I not see that? And, and you know, it's really funny because for any of our doctor friends listening, you know, one of the best advice I ever got from one of my mentors uh, in, in immunology, he was actually a dermatologist, allergist, immunologist, he was amazing. He said, you know, when you're caring for patients, like, you know, over the years or months, and, you know, they have this di these diagnoses, sometimes it's so important to almost like go in that room with like fresh eyes to say, gosh, you know, maybe I don't know that they have this. And it's so hard to do because we get used to and comfortable with the patients, but that's the only way by rethinking the diagnosis. Because yeah, listen, we all develop, we all develop tunnel vision and, yeah. you know, um, and the advantage I have five other practitioners working with me is sometimes I'll say, right. give me a favor. I'm going to call in Dr. So-and-so. I, I want them as a fresh pair of eyes to see if they could come up with something. But the, the one funny story that was a real learning lesson of one case, and I, and, and I bring it up when I have medical students and residents coming in, is a woman that came in once to see me. And a middle-aged woman very comes from a very affluent area near my practice. And she had right lower quadrant pain. And I was pretty convinced she had, you know, diverticulitis or appendicitis. She had fever and rebound tenderness. And I was oh, like, classic. listen, you know, yeah. normally I would treat this as a diverticulitis, but I'm not really so sure it could be appendicitis. Um, I, I said, I want you to go over to the emergency room and get a CAT scan done. And sure enough, sends her over to the ER. The ER doctor examines her and says, yeah, you know, I agree with Soskal, you know, let's scan her. He scans her and 
sure enough, um, surprised us all. She ended up having PID, pelvic inflammatory, pelvic disease. inflammatory disease. And the guy then went and, you know, did a pelvic examination on her and, you know, pretty conclusive that she had gonorrhea. Now, oh, which wow. this was not in our top 20. Right, right. Yeah, whatever, right. But, you know, her and her husband had a little dull sex life and decided to bring in a third party. You know, oh, this is getting juicier, prior. this story. I got, okay. <laughs> and, you know, and it was nothing that I yeah. even thought of or the ER doctor thought of. And, you know, we prejudged, we stereotyped, you know, if it was a 19 year old girl coming in, we probably would have been top on our list. Right, you know? right. So, yeah. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, we we were trained in the age, which, which is good in a way, you know, um, it's, I think what they, they use the term heuristic medicine, meaning like, you know, you you have your, your, your at your fingertips, a few of the key things that you, you know, your brain zeroes in on because again, yeah, we can't, you can't, you know, do a zillion tests on a patient. You got to, you know, our job as diagnosticians is to try to figure out what are the top three or four things that could be and that right. takes into account age, et cetera. It would be interesting to see with AI if, like, you know, I, I, I'm looking forward to the day, honestly, like those seriously, when you, you write down a person's symptoms and complaints, which, you know, you need a good, you know, practitioner to glean that. But then it's almost you feed it into the system and it gives you back the top four or five diagnoses to think about because you're right. I mean, it's that's what gets us. I mean, you, again, you know, again, in my training, you know, we're again with heart patients, we always, you know, trained, okay, male. You know, whatever it is, midlife, 50s, 60s, you know, a smoker, obese, whatever. And then all of a sudden you get a, a 40 year old guy playing chest pain and people are ready to like toss him out. Oh, this is costochondritis, just some rib pain. Right. You know, don't worry about it. And then, you know, of course, you find out he you had a heart attack at home and you're, you know, you're running your, you're not answering phone calls because you're worried it's a lawyer. <laughs> right. Listen, it's just, it, you bring that up and, you know, uh, people, Dr. Google. You know, yeah. I get more patients because of Dr. Google. P patients are diagnosing themselves. Yeah. They think they have disease X, Y, or Z. And then they're, you know, making an appointment in a panic. And, and yeah. I just laugh. I'm like, I, well, I tell patients, you know, about Dr. Google because I find it fascinating. I say to from my practice, particularly, I said, I find it interesting because my patients become really super educated, which I like. So we're, at, we're on a very even scale. Yeah. But what I do tell them at the end of that conversation is I said, I said, I guess I hope that my 30 years of experience seeing maybe a thousand patients with what what you sound like you have i can steer you in the right direction and then they usually feel okay yeah it's worth coming to see him <laughs> yeah you know but yeah, yeah, it's crazy you know because you know back in the day gosh if you went you mentioned like any of the doctors that trained us if you walked in with a, a journal paper or some book saying i think i have this they would throw you out of the office that was a <laughs> You know that in those days the doctors were on the pedestal and the patient was in the you know the lower tier right. there, so we had to make that adjustment. So I want to ask you, uh, oh gosh, we covered a lot of a lot of interesting stuff. What? Okay, let me ask you this too, <laughs> and we'll, we'll be delicate about this. What when a patient comes in, what makes a good patient? I mean, I know like when I'm a, when I when I have to turn around, and I'm a doctor, and I go to a, a doctor's office. I don't go with a you know a ten page list of my complaints. I try to be succinct, but it, it takes a lot of work. And obviously, you know, I have a medical brain so I can hopefully deliver it. What, what do you find, you know, it can, again, if people are listening, like if you're going to a doctor, what are the do's and don'ts, you know, gently you would say not to do or what to do? Like, like make sure you have your medications say, with you. <laughs> I would say be concise. 
Right. I would say be honest right. and, and to listen. You're there for our advice and, and our job is to educate, right? right. At the end of the right. day. And, you know, and I get very frustrated. A patient comes in, I'm like, did you do that colonoscopy I told you about? Or did you do the mammogram? Or did you start taking your medicines? And they say no. And I'm like, well, yeah. why are you coming to me? Right. It's, that's, at yeah. the end of the no, day, that's... you know. Yeah, you know, because right, sometimes, you know, like people, look, I understand it sometimes, you know, patients are funny in some ways, like, you know, they'll come in and say, um, I don't want to take any medicine, and I'm looking at all their supplements, and I, I believe in supplements, I think certain ones are appropriate, but then I'm like, but that's not going to help your really high blood pressure, you know, that's not going to help your super high cholesterol, you know, so we have to find that balance, because a lot of times they'll come to me, because they know I, I, my wife and I do holistic medicine thinking we're just gonna tell them you know take some herbs and you know eat a lot of carrots and everything will be fine it's not you know you need you know but that's you know well the the, the, the most frustrating part is you know what social media has done to medicine is that yeah. people will go on facebook and listen to what somebody tells them about treating you know a disease instead of listening to what you know the doctors and the scientists say you know um why are you seeing me then if you're going to listen to your, listen, just like with COVID, you know, how frustrating was it that people would listen to, you know, <laughs> to idiots, if you will, really telling them to take, you know, zinc and this and that, you know, and not to take a vaccine or not to take the antibodies. And I'm like, why are you coming to me now? Yeah. So, yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's frustrating and frightening. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people have gotten a lot of bad information. And again, I think it comes back to in that loss. I mean, if it used to work back in the day, check with your doctor. And I don't think people care what their doctor thinks about the COVID vaccine. They already have made up their mind, you know, as far as, you know, whether they're going to take it or not, or whether they think it's effective or not, or whether they think it's dangerous or not. So right. certainly that's a, uh whole nother discussion, but yeah, um, very, very frustrating and huge drain to our healthcare system. And uh, hopefully we've learned from this a little bit. Yeah. I want to ask you one other thing too, you know, in a lot of practice these days, patients, whether they're going to primary care doctors, especially, but even some specialists are seeing PAs, nurse practitioners, I mean, really, you know, well-trained people, but what would you say they, you have, they have to be careful about? Like, when should they say, I really need to see Dr. Sospel or I need to see, you know, in the practice versus, you know, or do the NPs and the PAs know sort of like when they're a little bit beyond what they should be handling? You know, it's interesting when, you know, the PAs and nurse practitioners came into the system, I was very against it. And um, I was introduced to a wonderful um, nurse practitioner named Margaret O'Donnell, who oh, yeah. Margaret, now works right? at Northwell system. And I was like, wow, you know, she's as good as a lot of these primary care doctors that I know. And, right. you know, I now have two uh, nurse practitioners working for me that are extremely well-trained. And I would say it takes a good 10 years uh, for a nurse practitioner to get to where she should be. You know, I don't think a nurse practitioner should be out working on his own or a physical uh, physician's assistant after three years, you just don't have the experience. Right. I know they're trying to do uh, like nurse practitioner residencies, you know, now yeah. all nurse practitioners are getting their DNPs, which is great. And um, I, I trust 
you know, my nurse practitioners take care of my family. I think they're as good or better than a lot of the primary care guys that I know out there. And, and just like a good doctor or a good nurse practitioner, they know when to ask for help. Yeah, uh, that's, the, that's the key. I find those a lot of them too, you're right. And a lot of them are very caring and compassionate and interested. Like, you know, cause I know when I get calls from someone, like sometimes I'm at the, you know, I get a referral from a very busy practice and, uh, you know, a lot of times the, the patients have maybe seen the doctor once, you know, they've mainly been followed by the nurse practitioners, you know, especially if it's a, a surgical specialty. Right. Uh, but they are very interested in learning, which is the key thing. I mean, because, you know, once you stop learning, you're finished. And, uh, and I think they do care a lot about their patients. Um, well, this has been pretty amazing and obviously a lot of fun for me. Again, to talk to a longtime friend and colleague, and we've had a million of these discussions over dinners, but now... You know, the whole world gets to listen. Anything you'd like to uh, share before we go off the air or give a handoff where uh, I think you're pretty full of patience. I don't think you were sending us any, any more patients. Yeah, practice. no, I, you know, I would just tell people to listen to their doctor and don't listen to social media. Okay. I, I think, you know, um, you know, you, you can't yell fire in a movie theater because people could get hurt. But for some reason, you can give out misinformation and not suffer any consequences. And I think things need to be fixed. And I think we need to promote, you know, promote people to have a primary care physician and, you know, urgent care has its place, but again, you're going to miss a lot. And, um, and I want to thank you for having me. All right. Great point. All right. Thank you for participating in the smartest doctor in the room. Thanks Dean. You take All care. Right.